0: Circuit, your podcast on the Federal Courts of Appeals. I'm your host, Anthony Sanders, Director of the Center for Judicial Engagement at the Institute for Justice. We're recording this on Friday, December 16th, 2022. Uh, We are quickly approaching the holidays, but before we get there, we have a couple uh, wonderful examples of uh, judicial engagement. Um, and also judicial abdication. Maybe one of the worst examples of judicial abdication that I have ever seen. Um, joining me for this happy news and sad news are a couple of my colleagues. They are Josh House and Jared McLean. Welcome, gentlemen.
1: Anthony, Thanks for having us, Anthony.
0: Well, let's start with the unhappy news uh, down in Louisiana. So, uh, Josh, this is a case that's up your alley because you have litigated uh, certificate of need laws with the Institute for Justice, and that essentially is what this case is about, um, and um, apparently they're, they're totally cool under the Constitution.
2: Uh, Apparently, uh, Anthony. And um, yeah, this this case is just a perfect example of judicial disengagement, uh, disengagement with the the facts and and creating a legal standard that's really perhaps impossible to meet. So um, the case is Newell Davis versus Phillips out of the Fifth Circuit. And uh, the case involves the plaintiff, uh, Ms. Newell Davis. She is a longtime social worker, has a lot of experience with different types of social work. And she wanted to start a business that offered, uh, respite services to uh family with special families with special needs children. Um, and those are services that teach children basic life skills, uh, to help them stay off the streets or to, um, basically just survive when their parents might be away. Uh, and, and again, the focus would be on, uh, on special needs children. So perhaps a service that's not widely available and, uh, these sorts of services, along with other uh, social work services, have to be licensed in Louisiana with the uh, Louisiana Department of Health. So these sort of services have to be licensed, as you mentioned, Anthony, under a sort of certificate of need scheme. And with these schemes, you essentially have to prove that there is a need for the service before you can open the service. And I know we've talked about those before, uh, like with the Kentucky Certificate of Need uh, case that was on Short Circuit a while back. Um and uh, the, the basic idea is that these come out of a time when uh, the idea was you needed to pre- prevent overinvestment in healthcare. And so uh, the government would come in and essentially ration the availability of these services by forcing new services and entrepreneurs to prove that the community would need them. The uh, The Louisiana Department of Health regulation at issue here requires not only that the uh applicant show that there's a need, but actually that there would be serious, uh, healthcare access consequences without their service opening. Now, the, uh, Ms. Newell Davis, the plaintiff in this case, uh, she, uh, argued that there is a need for her service because it uh, is provided to special needs children, um, that there is this need for respite services. And, um, Ultimately, after she applied to the Louisiana Department of Health, she was denied. And it is undisputed in this case that the reason that she was denied was that there was uh, because there was no uh, business necessary. So that's where we are when the case is filed. Ms. Newell Davis then files this case saying, look, um, this whole scheme is a way to keep out competition. It is not actually about um, making health care more accessible. It's not furthering any legitimate government interest. And, uh, that brings us to the standard that the court applied. So, um, the, uh, Ms. Newell Davis lost a summary judgment. It goes up on appeal and the fifth circuit applies this rational basis standard, which we've talked a lot about on this podcast. And this rational basis standard asks whether there is a, uh, the regulation legitimately is furthering a legitimate government interest, reasonably furthers that legitimate government interest. And so, uh, Ms. Newell Davis says it does not further any government interest. And the court disagrees. And the court really applies the most, uh, I would say, extreme version of rational basis, saying not only uh, does does she have to prove that the government's asserted interests in this case either um, were untrue or illegitimate, um, but actually also that she has to uh, show that uh, she has to what's called negate the interests that the court is going to think of during this litigation. Uh, and the, the court says it has thought of an interest that Ms. Newell Davis did not negate, which was uh, that it lowers the administrative burden on the government to not have to license new businesses In other words, it is easier for the government to uh, just turn away new businesses than it is um, and to focus regulating on the ones that are already licensed rather than have to go through licensing entirely new businesses altogether. And uh, the court says that um, this government interest is furthered by keeping out new people and therefore that the uh, regulation is constitutional.
0: That's uh, pretty interesting. The government just – doesn't have to do as much. So therefore the government
2: can just keep you out of your occupation. I mean, that's, that's right. I mean, the problem with this sort of rationale is that um, it's hard to imagine any regulation that doesn't meet that test. I mean, or any licensing program. I mean, the whole point of licensing is to keep some people from performing whatever it is that's being licensed and allowing others to do it. Now, the question ought to be, whether that licensing scheme is related reasonably as the standard says to some legitimate end so for instance uh, a health and safety regulation in the in the context of a respite service might make sense maybe she has to show that she has qualifications to offer respite services there's all sorts of ways in which this could relate to the actual license being provided by the government. Uh, But instead, the the end that the government says is, look, this has nothing to do with, um, you know, this has nothing to do with actually protecting health and safety. Uh, Indeed, the court says it doesn't really have anything to do with whether there's a need in the community. Uh, Really, what justifies this regulation is that the government doesn't want to have to keep tabs on further businesses. And so it's just not allowing more people to be licensed.
1: You know how the government could accomplish that is by not issuing the licenses in the first place, then it wouldn't have to keep tabs on anyone. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it's it, you
2: know it, it, we know that this can't be the actual law in this area because there have been licensing restrictions that have been struck down within the Fifth Circuit itself. You know, the the, the opinion here cursorily mentions the St. Joseph's Abbey decision, which uh, we had IJ litigated and involved uh, the licensing of um, of casket. Building essentially, and there, you you could make the exact same argument that the Fifth Circuit panel is making here, which is that well, fewer casket makers means fewer people to regulate. Um, but the court rejected that because that's that's obviously not enough to sustain um, a burden like this on someone's right to, to earn an honest living. And uh, and again, here it, it's it, it just seems like any any licensing scheme would meet this standard of uh, fewer people to have to license uh, and, and to keep tabs on.
1: Yeah, when you look at the outcome in this case, you might think like, oh, well, like, respite care, there's kids involved, maybe there's some government interest in protecting children at some general level. But then you actually read the opinion and it's, it's hard to imagine any licensing of anything that would not survive this level of rational basis review. The, the court says that it's not its job to consider the wisdom, the fairness, or the logic of legislative choices, and that the, it's the plaintiff's job to negate any conceivable basis that the court might come up with during oral argument or after what it's writing its opinion after oral argument and if you can't just affirmatively negate anything that the court might dream up it's going to uphold the regulation here and it yeah it, it just it's impossible to bring an economic liberty claim under this standard and like Josh mentioned St. Joseph's Abbey exists or at least in in name only it still exists still in the good Fifth Law. circuit yeah it it gets a few um passing parentheticals in the court's opinion but and the thrust of this opinion is just the government can do whatever it wants and it's a rational review at rational basis review at this level it's it's sort of detached from both the purpose of government and the purpose of what judges are supposed to be doing right because like what is the government's interest here in stopping someone from earning a living? And if the only interest that they can come up with is, it's cheaper and easier for us to not have to look over your paperwork and and have to issue a license, then they could just keep anyone for, they could require licenses for all industries and deny them to whoever they want at completely arbitrary levels just because of bureaucratic ease and that should never be the rational basis for denying someone a license
0: yeah it seems like there's there's two levels of interest here is what the court's saying so there's the the actual license that the the that the government has which has some kind of you know asserted uh um interest uh protecting public health and safety or whatever Ever and then in implementing that scheme, the government is saying, "Well, we need that license." And then it's hard if you have too many people that you have to go out and check on if they're if they're obeying that scheme and and therefore you know shouldn't have their license taken away or whatever you have to do for licensees. And so we're just not going to have those other licensees, um, which to me just almost seems illogical. Uh, and yet court just buys that. I mean, you're could you you're right. You could have had that in the casket cases, that the, the various casket cases that, that have been litigated. Um, so in jo- St. Joseph Abbey, the, the monks of St. Joseph Abbey, which were our clients, they um, made these caskets, they sold them so that the government could have said, well, we need to make sure that the casket itself is, um, is safe, which was a, a reason rejected by the Fifth Circuit in that case, as not being legitimate or not being connected. Uh, and so... The, um so because it takes us a lot of time and effort to go out and check on those licensees, which they, I don't think they actually did, um, then you can't even get a license in, in the first place. But, I mean, when you look at it that way, there's still the underlying license. Like, who cares however many you have to check on if whether it's one or a zillion, if the underlying reason for not allowing the license itself is irrational, then it it doesn't matter if you have to check
2: on other licensees. So there's a lot of levels going on there that don't make sense. No, exactly, Anthony. What you're, you're getting at, too, is what the court has termed in some of its decisions as a license holding itself up by its own bootstraps. Um, in, in other words, there has to be a good reason to have the license in the first place. It can't be that the licensing scheme justifies having a licensing scheme, which seems to be what the court is having here. So in, in this context, you know, the state has made the decision to license respite services. That is the decision uh, that has to be justified first before you get to, um, you know, what the consequences of having a license are uh, for the government. And it seems like instead the consequences of having a license, which results in fewer people practicing that, you know, pra- that activity or healthcare service. Justifies having a license in the first place. Um, and, and so you have l- like licenses justified by the fact that there are licenses. And, and that's, I think the Supreme Court has rejected that. Obviously, other courts have, have at least implicitly rejected that because we know licenses get struck down. So it, it you know, this is just a really disengaged, completely checked out opinion. And, and I want to say another example of just how checked out this opinion is is that they also, the plaintiffs also brought uh, state law. Uh, due process and equal protection claims, and the state law due process claims were dismissed um, supposedly for having been waived. And I, I looked at the briefing, Anthony, and there are pages of argument about these state law due process claims. And so it just boggles my mind how f- just completely checked out the Fifth Circuit was um, in this decision, not only in its reasoning, but in saying that claims that were clearly argued below were somehow were somehow waived at the trial court level.
0: Well, this this case was brought by our, our friends at the Pacific Legal Foundation, uh, led by Anastasia Bowden, and so uh, we don't know if this case is is going further. But uh, if if you know any case might be ripe for en banc review, it could be it could be this one to sort out what the heck the, the Fifth Circuit is saying about economic liberty. So we wish them well in that, and um, we wish uh, this case uh, to not have any more lasting effects. But of course, uh, that's a touchy business when it comes to the rational basis test. Now, a a case that had a little bit more of um, judicial engagement and, and um, looking at facts and standards and whether the government has actually lived up to them
1: is in the Sixth Circuit. And that's what uh, Jared's going to tell us about now. Yeah, this is a case about qualified immunity, which unfortunately often like rational basis does not um, get the benefit of judicial engagement. Often in these opinions, you see, you see curt reasoning that sort of just sweeps away the plaintiff's claims. But uh, as you mentioned, Anthony, this one, they, there was some judicial engagement here. It, it starts with police following a car with its brake lights out. They see it turn right without putting its signal on. They activate their lights and sirens, but the car just keeps going. And the police, they were in one of the, like the prisoner transport bands and not a squad car. They don't, they don't actually pursue when there's no chase, which like is good for them because there was also another qualified immunity case this week where police should have known that they were putting people's lives in danger, like starting a high speed chase over a misdemeanor. And the court said that they shouldn't be doing that. So like this was how things should have worked. And after the Ultima drives away, they look up its license plate and determine that the picture that they get in their database must have been the driver. They say it was the same older white guy with short hair who was behind the wheel. And they submit a police report where they say that they were able to see what the driver looked like and the attributes that they assigned to him were the ones that matched the picture that they saw on basically like the DMV database. And they recommend that this go to a grand jury and he get indicted for the failure to stop. The grand jury indicts based on this police report positively identifying the driver. And a couple weeks later on Thanksgiving, police show up and arrest the owner of the car at his house and hold him in jail for six days. The problem, according to the driver's eventual 1983 complaint, is that he wasn't the one driving the car that night, that it was his roommate who's 30 years younger than him, much shorter and has a different color hair. So if you take the plaintiff's claims here, the owner of the car, if you take his claims to be true, it, it's it, it's really hard to confuse him and his roommate based on their physical descriptions. And then he takes it one step further and he surreptitiously records his roommate admitting that he was the one driving that night. And then he hires an expert to recreate the scene and... Demonstrate that there was no way for the police to see into the driver's seat on that dark night when they were following him, because the car made a right-hand turn and the driver's view—the view of the driver—was obscured by the car. This and guy's so, pretty impressive, pretty organized, and <laughs> yeah, his no, <laughs> together. Yeah, and, and like, right. On the one hand, we're saying that this is this is a good demonstration of judicial engagement but on the other hand this guy gets falsely arrested and he has to put in a lot of work to demonstrate a, to to sort of proving the negatives of his case and so he's got his expert reports he's got the his his roommate on tape admitting it wasn't him the 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 charges against him eventually get dismissed allowing him to bring his 1983 action and it sort of turns into a battle of the experts with his, with his expert saying look, it was too dark. There was no way to see the driver and the police maintaining, of course, that they were able to successfully see the driver. And there's dashboard cam that is sort of, doesn't go either way. It's dark, it's grainy. It does dispute some of the things the police put in the police report, such as that, like, this car sped off and almost caused an accident and you were able to see from the the dashboard cam that that's not actually what happened. So that, I think, probably is in the back of the court's mind um, in whether a reasonable jury might look at these facts and determine that the police were lying here, the fact that there were already some things in the record aside from the plaintiff's own accusations that show that the police weren't being fully honest here. And so the trial court denies the officer's motion for summary judgment. And because it's a qualified immunity case, they're allowed to immediately appeal that denial to the Sixth Circuit. And the Sixth Circuit takes a look at this and they say that the standard that they're applying is whether given the record evidence, including the dashboard footage, the plaintiff's version of events was so demonstrably false that no jury could agree with him. So basically, if the plaintiff put forward enough evidence that could convince one reasonable juror that the cops were lying here then that was enough for his claim to survive summary judgment on qualified immunity grounds. And the, the thrust of his case at this th- was that the police af- caused his wrongful seizure to happen. They caused him to spend six days in jail over the holidays because they lied on the police report either knowingly, deliberately, or just with reckless disregard for the truth. Maybe they looked at the picture and were like, okay, yeah, good enough for us. Like we didn't actually see him, but th- th- that was that—that was probably enough. And w- the court didn't say that you had to like show that they deliberately and intentionally lied, just that they showed a reckless disregard for the truth on the police report that created the probable cause. And an interesting aside here is there's case law that says that when – police are behind a car, they run the license plate, that creates reasonable suspicion for the police to believe that the owner of the car is driving. So if the owner has any warrants out for their arrest, they can pull that car over on the assumption that the owner of the car is driving. But what the court says in this case was that assumption is not enough to satisfy satisfy the probable cause standard. So like it, in law, there's there's reasonable suspicion which can get you, like, Terry stops or Renn stops of a car. And then there's probable cause which you need to search and arrest someone. And it's often, like, this gray area of, like, what counts as reasonable suspicion but not probable cause. So it was interesting here that the court clarified it's not you, – you can't say probably that the owner is driving, but it is enough to give you reasonable suspicion to pull them over. But since they did not – there was no – they didn't pull over – The car here, to confirm who the driver was, all we had to go off of was the officer's description. And the court says that were it not for the officer's description, there would not have been probable cause in this case. So that's basically like saying but for the officers putting down the owner of the car's description on the police report, there would not have been a warrant issued for his arrest. So then you go back to the accusation that – that the owner makes, that the police here were just lying or showing reckless disregard for the truth. And the court goes through the facts and they go through the expert, his expert report and all this evidence he puts forward and how the, the dashboard footage doesn't confirm or deny really either way, but it does undermine some of the officer's assertions in the police report. And they say that a reasonable jury could have determined that the police were made a recklessly false statement that was necessary to the grand jury's finding of probable cause. And so that that's sort of like step one under the qualified immunity analysis. Like, was there a constitutional violation here? And the court says there was. And so then we get into whether that constitutional violation was, was clearly established because – in the way the courts apply qualified immunity, you you need to show a clearly established violation of the constitution so that the officers had fair notice that what they were doing was violating someone's constitutional rights and they can therefore be held accountable. Because, like, although we're all presumed to know the law, the officers that enforce the law are not held to that same presumption. And so we we have to clearly establish that they knew what they were doing was wrong. And the Sixth Circuit's analysis here goes in two parts. First, they say this is one of those special cases where the violation of the Constitution is so obvious that it doesn't demand a whole catalog of factually similar cases. And it says, it's long been the practice of the courts to define the right to be free from seizure without probable cause at a high level of generality, and a reasonable police officer would know that fabricating probable cause thereby effecting a seizure would violate the suspect's clearly established rights to be free from an unreasonable seizure. And although the court does go on to to talk about some cases that support this analysis and say, okay, even if it wasn't obvious, we're going to belt and suspenders this because there is case law out there in the Sixth Circuit that says that if you're If you're going to file a police report with insufficient information to support your probable cause statement and intend for that to lead to an arrest then you're violating the suspect's right to be free from an unreasonable um, seizure and so the court says denial of qualified immunity affirmed this is going back to the trial court and there will be Be a trial at which the jury can decide whether or not they agree with the plaintiffs that the officers here were lying. So we can actually have a jury of the driver's peers determine the facts of this case and whether his constitutional rights were violated, which is how the process is supposed to work. Josh, have you ever
0: been arrested on Thanksgiving because your roommate was driving your car?
2: (laughs) No, no, that, that hasn't happened. Uh, Thankfully, I can only imagine what it what would it be like. Uh, uh, I, I represented someone who was uh, arrested on, I believe it was Christmas uh, once. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's just spending the holiday away from family would be horrible. I mean, when that I. That was the only day they could th- come get him, I'm sure. Was yeah, yeah, to yeah exactly. Day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, it, it, this, this case is really interesting for a lot of different reasons. Um, I, you know, What's 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 obvious to a normal person um, is both that arresting someone on a holiday is a special kind of horrible, uh, but also that like if you're an officer, you shouldn't be lying on your police reports. And um, you know the, the qualified immunity analysis sort of has like two angles, right? Like on the on the one hand, it could be clearly established law that says hey, look, there's a case on point that says, don't do this, officer. And if you guys do it anyway, then you're going to suffer the consequences. But what I like about it is that even though there were clearly established cases, the court goes out of its way here on the Fourth Amendment uh, seizure claim to, to make a point that also this is obvious because it is obvious. I mean, one of the reasons police reports get so, some might argue, overused in uh, as evidence in criminal cases is that Jurors and uh, other people find police officers sort of inherently trustworthy to some extent. Um, And if it's – he said, she said, you know, when it comes to some sort of uh, dispute over what happened, oftentimes police reports get benefit of the doubt. And so, you know – Officers know that, and they should also. It's just obvious that they should also know that if they lie on those reports, that it's going to have consequences uh, on someone's life. And I, I love that the court, in addition to addressing the rote legal analysis of here are cases that have to do with this subject, and also approaching those cases with the with the proper level of generality in order to analogize to them to this. This situation. I just love that it also goes out of its way to say, and it's obvious. <laughs> it is so obvious.
0: Yeah, I mean, it could have, it could have just rested on that case, which is hard enough in a qualified immunity case, and it's a, there actually is a case on point, and that would have been the end of the story. But it begins that part of the opinion with this obviousness analysis. One thing I thought was really interesting, and maybe this isn't on on purpose or or not, but um, the, the, this point about obviousness was kind of, wasn't, didn't come up very much, um, until just a couple years ago with a case, uh, maybe it was only a year ago with a case that we've talked about here, um, on Tort circuit a few times, Taylor versus Rojas, um, where the court, uh, in a per curiam decision, it wasn't a, a fully argued case. It just came up the Supreme court and they kind of summarily reversed it. But in that, in a short opinion said, you know what's happening in this case, which was just t- absolutely terrible facts about um, someone held in a cell, wallowing in their own feces for a certain amount of time. Um, said this is just so obvious a violation of the Constitution that you don't need a case on point, and that kind of like reawoke this idea that yeah, sometimes it's just so obvious you don't need a case on point. But um, this case doesn't doesn't it cites some some Sixth Circuit cases, a couple of older Supreme Court cases. It doesn't say, cite uh, Taylor. Um, And so I don't know if that's a sign of uh, the court is realizing there's there's enough out there that it's not just this one recent Supreme Court case that uh, has made that point or or what. But it's kind of heartening to see that maybe this is a,
1: a growing understanding. Yeah, I and I believe it was Taylor versus Rojas in the lower courts. That at least in one of the lower court decisions, I think came out the wrong way because it was – the courts got so used to applying this this standard where I believe the Rojas was like held in his – naked in his own feces for like six hours and the precedent only said you can't hold someone in their own feces for 48 well, hours. Yeah, I, was, yeah, the, I, I think a certain the, number of days. <laughs> Oh, yeah, and the officers were like, oh, well, we, we we knew there was a limit, but we didn't know the limit was there. <laughs>
2: I mean, but it, it tells you something about the state of qualified immunity law that in this case, the officers with a straight face made this argument. And I'm looking at the opinion here. It says the officers um, – the officers said that Caskey should have provided a case in which officers observe an individual fleeing from them in a dangerous manner who then stopped – uh, the officers then stopped pursuing in order to avoid harm to themselves. And then the officers believe they positively identified the, the individual, and then they requested an indictment, and then that, in, that violated the individual's rights. In other words, all of those things have to be present according to these officers before there's a case on point. And the, uh, they, I mean, the court laughs this off and basically says, no, you don't need something that's that specific. It can just be officers who lied in a police report. A, a case that says you can't lie in a police report is is putting officers on notice enough. But the reason the officers can make that argument is because of cases like Rojas and other cases that just, you know, say, oh, you know, that 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 had to do with, you know, a, an officer who was walking down a street at this same time of day on that same month of the year. And only then would the officer have been on, on notice. He couldn't do that action. Um, and and I, I love that this this decision says, no, that's that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about would an officer know it's wrong to lie? Yes.
1: Yeah. And and. We, the opinion doesn't get into this, but um, IJ uh, just filed an amicus brief in a case called Villarreal on the Fifth Circuit, and we're about to file, file another one called Rogers, where this like – we we try to really dig into what it means for an officer to be put – to have fair notice that what he or she is about to do is unconstitutional and, and whether – when, you're, when officers are making non-split-second decisions, like the officers here, they went back to the station. They thought about it. They filed the police report. If what they did was lie on that police report, like that, that that's not the type of thing that the Supreme Court ever was or should have been trying to protect through qualified immunity <laughs> and like they, they had – A split-second decision of lying on my report. Right, right, and and like in, in these two cases in the Fifth Circuit that we're working on, like the one, the the it's there's this delay between the officers deciding they're going to violate someone's constitutional rights and then following through with it, and when we have that delay, there's. Not only notice of what the law is, but there's an opportunity to seek legal advice and sort of find out what the parameters are. And that should factor into the clearly established analysis and whether or not they were on fair notice. In this case, in the Fifth Circuit, Rogers, the police actually went and asked the district attorney if they could do what they were going to do. And the district attorney said no. And they put it in their police report anyway. And then they try to hide behind the fact that, like, that it then went through the process and they're they're like, oh well, we're a couple steps removed. And that's what the officers here did. They they taking the plaintiff's allegations as true, they lied on the police report and then they tried to say, oh, but then someone had to take it to the grand jury. And then the grand jury had to make the decision. And then some other officers went to his house and actually completed the arrest. So like we we're actually like five steps removed from the seizure here. And you can't hold us responsible for it. And what what this decision from the Sixth Circuit says and hopefully the decisions that are going to come out from the Fifth Circuit will say is that like you, you are responsible for the consequences of your actions and if you are – if you are as a police officer making decisions at the station – that you know are likely to result in an unconstitutional seizure of somebody's body and have them put into jail without probable cause, then you are going to be held responsible for those consequences, even if there were intermediate steps where other people had to carry the ball for you.
0: And those those cases uh, that you bring up, Jared, that you're um, working on the the briefs in are. Um, I know we've talked about some – on on the show in the past, and we'll definitely be watching uh, the outcome and and how argument goes in them. Um, that I looked up uh, Taylor versus Rojas, uh, and, I, and what I I thought I remembered is true. It was six full days of uh, wallowing in feces in your own cell. Um, somehow is obviously unconstitutional, uh, to, says the Supreme Court. So um, uh, I hope everyone remembers that. And they also remember not, if you're a police officer, not to lie on your report, Uh, you are now on notice, and so qualified immunity will not attach. Um, but I will attach to both of my guests a very uh, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year, and thank you for coming on Short Circuit. And to the rest of you, we're going to have one more episode next week before we um, we call it quits for the holidays for a bit. Um, although uh, there is a surprise, uh, a holiday surprise uh, next next episode. So you want to uh, you want to tune in for that. And in the meantime, I hope everyone will get engaged you mm-hmm.